Lord, I thank you for this time we get to spend in your word in the Old Testament and in the Minor Prophets again. I pray that it would be instructive, Lord, that you would open our hearts to what you have to say. And may we be moldable in your sight always, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to go through the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah is... Well, Zephaniah means Yahweh hides or hidden in Yahweh. Zephaniah is the last of the Old Testament minor prophets to prophesy before Judah went into exile. So he's the last of nine who prophesied before they went into exile. He is kind of like an 11th hour prophet. Right before judgment was coming, he was sent in to try to get the people to turn away from their sins so that they wouldn't be judged. Now, his contemporaries were Jeremiah and Habakkuk. Now, in a sense, I believe this message is very similar to what we have to do today. We are in the 11th hour. We don't know when Jesus is coming. We don't know the time of the day or the hour, but we know judgment is coming and we know it's close. So in a sense, it is a message of urgency. It is something that's important. And you can kind of look at it kind of like a train conductor. A lot of the prophets were on the train. Certain points in the journey, they're saying, judgment's coming. You need to get off this train. This is the train of judgment. The closer they got, the more the prophets would say, this is the train of judgment. And Zephaniah, he's the last conductor. And he's saying, look, This is the point you really need to get off. Judgment is definitely coming. And we are that conductor as well to those in this time. Now, Zephaniah has several themes. And in a sense, it's a very dark book, mainly because it speaks of the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a time of judgment on the whole earth in a future sense that's coming. It mentions the day of the Lord seven times. That's more than any other book in the Bible. And this book only has three chapters. Now, it refers to it specifically seven times, but mentions it in various other phrases a total of 19 times in these three chapters. We can break Zephaniah down into three parts. Part one is chapter one through verse two, three. And what it is is a warning of impending judgment upon God's people, which is Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, that, those people. Now, chapter two, four to 215 is the judgment of the surrounding nations of Israel. Those who, uh, they attacked Israel. They were, they were ministers of God's judgment to Israel at one time or another, but they're getting judged. Now the last chapter is the, that's the good chapter. The two chapters are first two are kind of dark. The last one is a chapter of restoration where God has, has brought judgment, but at the end of judgment is God building Israel back up. He's bringing them peace. He's restoring them. And that's important because God's judgment is never a judgment of I'm trying to think of how they put it in, in the movie. I can't remember the name of the movie now. Bruce Almighty. Jim Carrey's character said, God is the, a man with a magnifying glass burning little ants. That was his description of who God was, how God, how violent God was, God's judgment. But that's really not the case. We learn in Hebrews 12, I believe it is, that God is 
a God of discipline, and he does bring judgment, but the ultimate point of that judgment is restoration to a relationship with the Father. It's chastisement. It's discipline. And I always have to explain that to my kids. I said, look, you know what? I've warned you, and now I've got to discipline you. And after I discipline them, I don't push them away into a corner or tell them to go to their room. I mean, they do have to eventually go to their room after we've talked. But after we talk, what we, well, what we talk about is, look, I've told you to do something. You haven't done it. You've been disobedient. You've broken that relationship with your mother and I. So I'm disciplining you. I give them the discipline, but I don't push them away at that point. At that point, I always bring them into my lap, and I tell them, look, I love you. This is not the direction I want you to go. This is not the direction God wants you to go. And I, I'm not going to give you the whole spiel. They could probably recite it to you. But <laughs> the point is, God's not pushing us away. Whenever he's judging us or chastising us or disciplining us, he's never pushing us away. It's always to bring us into the right relationship with him again. And so that's really one of the themes you can see in the book. Yes, there's a theme of judgment. But when God brings judgment in the future, there are people on earth, they do reject God because of the judgment. But there's other people there, they look at it and they go, okay, I know who God is now. I know now I really need to follow him. And those people during the tribulation, they're going to pay for that. But they're not going to be, uh, but they won't go to hell. So the point is to bring them back. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So, the unique thing about Zephaniah, or one of them, is he's the only prophet to show his lineage in this way. And that's significant because he did it to show that he was the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah. This means he was really the only prophet with some kind of royal lineage. He had a direct access to the courts that some of the other prophets didn't. Amos and Micah were, one of them was a shepherder, one of them, I uh, forget what he did, but they didn't have direct access to the court at all times, so they may have been prophesying, but at some point the king could say, you know what, no, just don't even open the door for him. But Zephaniah was part of the royal court. He had access. Josiah, the king he prophesied under, was probably his second or third cousin. So they were related. Now, I bring up Josiah. Josiah was actually the last godly king of Judah. His two predecessors were actually the two worst kings of Judah, Manasseh and Ammon. Manasseh was said to have filled blood from one end of Jerusalem to the other. He reigned 55 years, and though he eventually did repent of his sins, his sins and the repercussions caused damage that made the nation never recover. Ammon reigned two years. He was just as wicked as his dad, but he didn't get the opportunity to do anything else because he was actually assassinated. The people of Judah at that point rose up, executed the assassins, and placed Josiah on the throne. Now, Josiah inherited a nation steeped in idolatry and Baal worship. Now, Baal worship was sort of extinguished, extinguished at one time. Manasseh is the king that brought that back. Now, Josiah was eight years old when he was placed on the throne. My middle son is seven years old. 
Actually, and my oldest son is actually eight years old now that I think about it. I probably should have realized that. Um, but I can't imagine my sons on the throne at that age. Knowing who they are now and how much I've had to discipline them, and knowing that Josiah was a boy who was probably not disciplined by his father because of just what his father had done. I can't imagine how he would have ruled. Now, I, I'm sure my son would have said, Otter Pops for everybody. I'll take the green ones or, or whatever, but, and they love Otter Pops. But they, usually a child that age is only thinking of one thing, and that's himself. It's, what can I get for me? What can I do that I can get more of? I'm sure if he was in modern times, he would have looked for the most modern toy that he could have got. But what was unique about Josiah was in, it says in Second Chronicles 34.3 that in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he actually began to seek the God of his father David. Now, I'm not sure exactly what initiated that, but I'm sure that God was obviously part of it, moving his heart. Now, in the twelfth year of his reign, the four years after God had moved on his heart, he actually started to purge the land of all its idols and altars. Now, Zeph, this is where Zephaniah came in. I believe right after God had moved his heart, he was about 16 years old at that time, and still 16 years old is a time of usually now independence because you get your license and stuff. But he's 16, God moves his heart, and Zephaniah probably comes in around this point, and Zephaniah starts prophesying. Now, I think Zephaniah had an impact on him. I think there were other godly people still around at that time. There always was a remnant that God kept in Israel. If there was three-quarters of the people who were following Baal, there was definitely a smaller remnant that was still following God, even if it wasn't as strong as they could have been. Now there were, so there were definitely godly influences. Now, as you read Zephaniah, as we continue to read it, a lot of times he seems like hellfire and brimstone. And that's necessary sometimes. And then we see in the book of Jude, there's actually two ways to approach people. One of them actually is, it says, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Like, don't even want to touch it. Just preach it blunt and how it is. And then there's also some that you're more sensitive to. Zephaniah was not sensitive for most of his book. He says, this is the judgment that's coming, and he's descriptive about it. Verse 2 and 3. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Verse 3, I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now this is a general statement of judgment against the whole earth, and this is most likely a future picture because he doesn't judge the whole earth at this point. So this is a future. We're not going to get to that right now. Verses 4 and 6, though, this is specific to Judah. And this is specific to the idolaters who are there in the nation. He says in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests. So God announces judgment against the idol worshipers. Now, apparently, both the leadership and the people heeded this announcement of judgment because in the days of Josiah, he actually had revival, and he instituted reform. 
Now, there are some who say it wasn't a real revival. Now, I, don't, I dispute that because revival happens in the heart. There were some people, and there always will be, where it is just an outward reform. The Pharisees were very good at outward reform, looking good on the outside. But there were definitely hearts that were touched. Now, I mentioned Zephaniah was a member of the royal court. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar came and ransacked Jerusalem, and he took captives, most people believe he took members of the royal court who were going to be able, who were able to be taught the wisdom of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. Now, those people would have been Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. Most people believe they were members of the royal court. They were royalty in some way. So this revival that happened in Josiah's day, it had an impact because it affected, it affected Daniel's mother and father who then taught Daniel. And Daniel goes away at 12 to 16, whatever his age range was at the time, and he makes an impact on the king of Babylon. So you never know. You may have a revival in your heart. And God says, this is what I want you to do. And you go do it. And that impact that he has on you, you impact someone else. That goes to the next pebble in the pond or whatever, the ripple. It always has an effect. So you never know where, what the revival is going to be. There will always be people who just reform on the outside. But there was definitely revival in Josiah's day. And we see that because Daniel was the effect of that or one of the effects of that. And consequently, when Judah returned from captivity, because God judged the idolaters and the idol worship, Judah, Israel, never had a problem with worshiping false gods ever again after that. They had a problem with spiritual lethargy and other things that had to do with Judaism, but they never followed false gods again after that. Verses 5 and 6. Those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host... Those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Idolatry wasn't just going on to high hills and worshiping under trees like they did do. Idolatry was in the home. Now in the homes back then, the roofs were more flat. And they actually had laws in the law in the Pentateuch that said, make sure you put a parapet around your roof so no one falls off and accidentally dies. Now, it was a place where they would go in the evening to cool off and, and hang out. But what they did at this point was, is they made them places of worship for constellations and the zodiac and things like that. So idolatry wasn't just in the temples and the hillsides. They brought it into their home. And the problem is, they were still going to the temple and offering sacrifices. They were still going to church. What they were doing was, is practicing what's called syncretism. And syncretism is basically a combination of different forms of belief and practice. So I can say I'm a Christian, but maybe I want to weave in New Age Buddhism or something like that into it. And there's people like that. And Baha'i faith is a, a weird combination of Christianity and something else. But that's syncretism. And that's what they were doing. They were saying, yep, I'm Jewish. I follow all these customs, I do all this, but I really like that, that aspect of the worship of Molech, so I'm going to weave that into my basket of religion. And that's what they would do. And this is also an area that we, I need to check, we need to check ourselves in. 
we need to ensure that when we're doing something, we're doing it because we're following God's word. We're not doing it because we've always done it or because that person does it. And that seems like a good idea. We need to make sure we don't combine other beliefs and practices of the world and incorporate it into our life that we're supposed to be living. And I think this is very easy now because we can come to church on Sunday and we can go home and we can, and I'm going to list a couple of examples. And I mean, I don't know anybody who does these here. There may be people who do, but you can worship, you can come to church on Sunday and worship the gods of pleasure at home. You can go home and play video games first person for hours at a time. And there's people who play them for 10 to 12 hours straight. And I think Pastor Bill mentioned it one Sunday. And they've done studies that video games actually target the pleasure center of the brain where you become addicted to it. And there's things that, like that that happen. Now, I'm not saying I have a problem with video games in general. I don't play them that often. But they can certainly be enjoyable. But when you gorge yourself on that, it affects the pleasure center of the brain. You're pleasing yourself above pleasing God. The same thing can happen if we don't have control around food. The same thing could happen with almost anything that dominates your mind and brings you pleasure over and above what God would have for you. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying what God has given us. I remember hearing Chuck Smith teach once. And he was saying, you know what? I love surfing. I love going out. I love sitting on the waves, and I like looking at God's creation. Now, he liked surfing, and he did surf, but it didn't dominate his life. He took pleasure in what God had given him to do and enjoyment from that. I personally like hiking. I like to hike not just because the exercise. I like to look at what God's done. Now, there's people who hike for a living, and they it's all they do. They get off work, and they go, and they hike for hours. But there's always a boundary. You've got to find out, am I living for pleasure? And the Bible says those who live for pleasure, they're dead while they live. And it says in numerous other places that that's not something we should do. In fact, it says in 2 Timothy that pursuing pleasure is going to be a trait of the end times. I think that's in chapter 3, verse 2, or around there. But we've got to make sure there's no syncretism. We don't have that in our life, that we're not weaving anything in, no pleasure, no ideals, nothing, that we're following God exclusively from his word. And just to show you how prevalent even idols could be in the New Testament, it's mentioned in most of the books in some form or another. It says in Ephesians, covetousness is idolatry. And 1 John is ended by saying, my little children, keep yourselves from idols, showing how prevalent and easy it is to get caught up in that. Verses 7 through 9. And this is judgment promised to the royalty or the leadership at the time. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. Now, God is addressing the royalty in a way that they're probably not used to hearing. Usually when you approach royalty, you're humble, you bow down, you say, my Lord, may I please whatever. But Zephaniah addresses him like this. Shut up and listen. You're not paying attention. So when he said that, they're probably like, oh, well, I've never heard that before. Don't they know who I am? But no, he says, just shut up and listen. I need to tell you something. 
Now he says that and he says, you yourselves are being prepared as a sacrifice if you don't repent. Now he's, they're familiar with sacrifice because they would prepare sacrifice. They would take it to the temple, but he's saying, look, it's not the sacrifice you're going to take. You are the sacrifice and I'm sacrificing you to the Babylonians. If you do not turn from your sin, he's trying to grab their attention. If he hasn't already verses eight and nine. Now, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's son and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Okay. He mentions clothing here. Now, clothing is usually a statement or orientation of the mind of a specific person. It's... It, a lot of times shows their philosophy. It'll show their outlook on life. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I was discussing with my kids this morning on the way to church. They were asking, why do we dress up for church? Does the Bible say we have to dress up for church? Now, this is what I told them. I said, there's no place specifically in the Bible that says, I must dress up for church. I must wear a suit. I must do this. I must do that. But when we dress up for church and we dress in a nice way, those who do that are trying to show respect and love for God as they come, when they come to church that way. Now, those who don't, they're not, they don't necessarily have less respect for God in the way they dress. Maybe they express that in different ways. Now, me personally, and I told them this, if I wasn't an elder in the church... I would not be dressing on a collar and pants on Sunday. It would be shorts and a t-shirt because that's me. That's what I, I mean, I, I wear collar, shirt, and pants at two places. That is work because it's required and they pay me to. And church because God asked me to set an example as a leader. And Pastor Bill. But me personally, every other time you'll see me, it's probably in shorts and a t-shirt. I don't wear anything else because that's my personality. That's me. Now, if you would like to wear shirts and T-shirt on Sunday, you feel free. I don't judge anybody in that. In fact, Mike McIntosh, when he first started um, Calvary San Diego, a lot of times he would preach in holy jeans. Uh, he doesn't anymore, but at one time he would. And people, some people got offended, other people didn't. But it's really clothes set a statement for you. There are times where we've gotten clothes from other people for our children because they go, oh, your kids look like they need clothes. And so we'll get bags and bags of clothes and we'll go through them and we'll pick out things we like and donate the rest to other people who might need clothes. But a lot of times we'll look at stuff and we'll go, yeah, Mariah, you're definitely not wearing that. Or, well, usually it's Mariah because it's, it's girls' clothes that I find most questionable. If you saw my, my oldest son, this morning, you'll notice he's wearing a t-shirt and holy jeans. I didn't say anything to him. They are holy. Um, anyway, it's usually how a Christian should dress is in modesty. Even men should dress in a appropriate fashion displaying godliness. But these people in Judah were wearing the fashions of the pagan nations. Now, in the law, it says they were, the Jews were supposed to wear a train of blue or uh, blue hem around their garment to remind them of heaven, that that's where they're from. That's where they should be looking towards. Now, they were wearing these pagan clothes instead, 
which is basically representative of those gods. So your clothes, the clothes really does, in a sense, make the man or the woman. Verses 10 and 11. This is judgment on merchants. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. The fish gate is the present gate, Damascus, in Israel. It is the gate that faces north. It's where the fish would be brought in from the Jordan River into the city to sell in the marketplace. Now, this is really speaking of the people who trusted in their riches. Now, usually those are people who owned the businesses, and they were the merchants, and they bought, and they sold. But these were the people who were trusting in their riches to get out of things. We don't have to worry about this because we can just pay our way out of it. And mon- but money, mon- excuse me, money only gets you so far. And this is just as much a problem, or can be today. In First Timothy, Paul is warning. He says, "Look, you need to talk to the rich." He's talking to Timothy. You need to talk to the rich. He warns them and says, "Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God." who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's very easy to trust in money. If you have it, you usually say, well, I'm good. I've got money. I know I can be taken care of. It's quite another to go, you know what? God has provided this. What else can I do with this? And not think of it. It says in also 1 Timothy chapter 6 that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Judah is being plunged into ruin and destruction. They've trusted, or some of them have, in their uncertain riches to get them out of this. And it's not going to happen. In fact, when you look at history, you can see that this is, verses are a good description of Nebuchadnezzar who entered from the north gate. And when he took the city, he went through the gate and he went into the second quarter or the new quarter where the market was and he basically wiped it out. So he's prophesying, saying, look, you need to repent or this is going to happen. They didn't repent. And it's exactly what happened. It's exactly what got fulfilled. Verses 12 and 13. Now this is judgment promised on the complacent. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. These are the people who say God's not really involved. They weren't really worried about it. God's not going to do that. He doesn't care what we're doing. God wound up the clock, he set it down, and he walked away. We don't have to worry about that. That's what these people are doing. They're the complacent. Now, he he mentions that they're like wine left on its dregs. What they would do after they put the wine in the wine press and stepped on it, and the wine drained out, they would actually take the wine and they would put it in one pot, and they would let it settle. And all the sediment and everything would settle to the bottom of the pot. So they would take that, they would pour it into a new pot, and the sediment would stay on the bottom. And they would do that many times so that all the sediment, which made the wine sour, would not go into the wine for when it was made sweet. 
So what he's saying is, you are like sour wine. You're sitting complacently doing nothing, trusting that God is really not worried about it. He said, but you're sour wine. But those who are not complacent, who've been poured, who've let the sediment settle that's going to make them rotten, the sin in their life, those people are the ones who are actually sweet to God, who are following God. But he's comparing them to sour wine. The word of God didn't move these people any longer. They'd say, you know what, the word of God is awesome, but I don't really need it. And that'd be like us saying, yeah, I carry my Bible to church every Sunday. And occasionally I read it during the week. It's a really good thing to read. I'll get to it eventually. They were complacent, just like there's times where we can be complacent. And the Bible tells us in Second Peter that complacency is actually a sign of the end times as well. When people will say, where is the promise of his coming? Why isn't he here yet? Now, I was born in the 70s, and so I didn't necessarily live through it. But what I've read is when all these books on the rapture came out in the 70s, there was great fire, there was great revival, everybody was excited. There's not as much excitement now. I get excited over it when I read that stuff. But you look at the people who've been around for a while, and they go, you know what? It's going to happen eventually. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. There are some churches who don't even teach on eschatology, the end times, or even the rapture, because they don't think it's important. But the rapture and living in urgency of the day is what we're commanded to do so that we don't become complacent. When we don't expect his return, that's when we start to stagnate. Now, he says, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, which basically is saying everything's going to be brought to light. But this is also interesting because this is a continued description of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of the city. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he took over the top, but he knew there were things underneath. He knew there were tunnels. So what he did is he took oil lamps, not him personally, but his, his army, and they went into the tunnels of the city looking for those who were hiding And that's what God's doing. Some of us are in church kind of hiding, just waiting, being complacent. God is looking for those people. He wants revival in those lives. He doesn't want us to be complacent. And he always reminds us throughout Scripture, look, everything that's hidden, it's going to come to light. We're going to find out eventually. God, And nothing's hidden from God. So let me go back and recoup that. These are four areas that can intrude into our lives, keeping us from the fire and revival that should be happening in our hearts. Verses 4 through 6 was false beliefs and practices we allow in our life. That hinders revival. Imitating the world and the way we dress or the way we act hinders revival in our hearts. Trusting in money instead of God's supply. That hinders revival in our hearts complacency if you can't move forward you're not going to have a revival in your heart verses 14 to 18 this is a description of judgment to come and i'm not going to really go into it other than read it the great day of the lord is near near and coming quickly the cry on the day of the lord is bitter the mighty warriors shout his battle cry that day will be a day of wrath a day of distress and anguish, 
a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make sudden end of all who live on the earth. I said this was a dark book, and that's only five verses of it. He speaks of the day of the Lord here, though. And this is, again, we've mentioned before in a twofold sense. There is an immediate sense of judgment by the Babylonians that they're going to face. But there's a far sense of future wrath on all nations. It'd be like you looking through binoculars. Now, you can go up to Glacier. I don't know if you've been to Yosemite, but in Glacier Point in Yosemite, you can see the whole valley. Now, you can see Half Dome right in front of you at a certain point, and that's fairly close. And that would be like the judgment on Israel. But beyond that, they have these other domes in the park. Those would be future judgments in the, in the future. That is what it is. That is what scriptures on day of the Lord speak of. There's always an impending present judgment on whoever he's talking about, but there's always a future judgment that he's referring to at the end. And we know that because Paul and many of the other writers in the New Testament mention the day of the Lord as a future judgment. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is a call to repentance. Gather together. Gather yourselves together, you shameful nation. Before the decree takes effect and that day passes like wind-blown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. He wants them to understand that this is just a warning. They can avoid this judgment that's going to come. All they have to do is repent. Because God's not willing that any should perish. He wants them all to come to repentance. He's basically asking them here to come together for a religious prayer meeting. Kind of like the National Day of Prayer that we're going to have on Thursday. Where we all need to meet and not just pray for the nations, but ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness for ourselves, for the for our nation, just like Daniel did. Daniel asked for forgiveness for sins that we don't even know what he sinned. And he, he asked for forgiveness for the sins of his nation. And that's what he's asking them to do here. Get together. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. And he gives them a time frame. He says, before the day passes like chaff. What that means is, again, there's an urgency in the message. Because now is the day of salvation, as the New Testament says. Now, often, the devil's most powerful lie isn't that there is no God, because even the devil knows there's God. Most people agree, in some sense, that there is a higher power, that God is out there. His best argument isn't that there's no Bible. It's not that there's no truth. A lot of people think God is trying to speak some way or another, and that there is truth. But Satan's most powerful lie is often there's no hurry. Because a lot of times people will say, yeah, you know, I know that's true, but I don't really want to commit to that yet 
because I got more of my life to live, assuming that God is not going to give you an enjoyable life or a fulfilling life. Satan wants you to put it off. And he's saying here, Zephaniah, don't put it off. Now is the time you need to repent. Now is the time you need to come to me. So he says, hurry, before all this becomes a reality. And he says, seek, seek, in verse 3, three times. First he says, seek the Lord. And we seek the Lord in prayer, we seek him in his word, and we make time to do that. Second thing he says is seek righteousness. Seek a right relationship with those around you. Do you have something against a brother or sister in Christ? Do they have something against you? Ephesians 4.32 says that we are to be kind and tender-hearted to one another. We need to make sure that we're always in a right relationship with our brothers and sisters. And if we are, that's the love that others are going to see. And that love is what's going to bring people to Christ. Christ said, that's going to be, that's how all will know you are my disciples, by the love that you show. Now then it says, seek humility. And that is the attitude we're supposed to have through everything we do. It is very easy to become prideful in accomplishing things, not realizing that it's God who gave us the ability to do that to begin with. But he has us seek those three things. I'm actually going to end there because I want to do communion. And we are doing communion, right? Before we do communion, I want us all to look at our hearts, where they are, where they stand. Because I can tell you, even when I prepare for Bible study, I sin the same days that I'm preparing the study. I can tell you, Friday and Saturday, they were not good days for me. They were rough. Uh, I sympathize with my wife when I'm at work because our kids are little snots sometimes. And they were definitely ripe for judgment Friday and Saturday, I promise you. Uh, and I was very frustrated. And Johnny can attest to that because he came over. <laughs> but it was, it was trying. And so even when preparing the message, I was like, I had to keep checking my heart because I kept getting frustrated with things. But we need to make sure that those things don't intrude into our life those worldly things that we're not complacent, that we keep moving forward. And then we need to do those three things. We need to make sure that we, before we take the bread and we, we sip the cup, that our heart is prepared to seek the Lord, that it's prepared to seek a right relationship with our, our Christian brothers and sisters, and that we have an attitude of humility. In fact, humility is really the one thing that Christ described about himself, meekness. He was meek. He didn't describe himself any other way. He wasn't proud or arrogant, but he looked at others as the Father looked at them, as those who are lost. Lord, I pray that as we remember the sacrifice that you made, as we remember your shed blood, Lord, Lord, we would not be complacent remembering your sacrifice. We would not let worldly things hinder our progress. Lord, that we would seek you 
in everything that we do. That we would remember judgment is coming, Lord, and the time is near. And that we would be motivated to tell others of the sacrifice that you've made so that they can avoid judgment. Start a fire in our hearts, Lord. Help us to have a revival in our hearts so that we can have a revival as a nation, Lord, and bring others to you. We thank you for this time and this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.